While everybody is finding their seat, let me just uh, quickly remind you of the announcements. DBM needs some proofreaders for transcripts, and you can go to the About Us page on the DBM website and complete a contact form or uh, email or talk to Barb uh, Apple. Also check the, uh, the tour groups. We still have room on all of them. We're getting more and more people signing up for the Greece and Israel tours. And then don't forget the church picnic, October the 19th. Start praying now. <laughs> Nobody do a rain dance. I mean, the way things look, on the 10-day forecast tonight, I saw that there's like a 20 or 30% chance of rain every day in the next next week, 10 days to, to two weeks. And, uh, of course, Florida is going to get a little rain. So that <clears throat> that will be challenging for them. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin, we'll have a few moments of of silent prayer so we can make sure that we are uh, walking by the Spirit, according to the Spirit, abiding in Christ, walking in the light so that we can maximize our time in the Word this evening and God the Holy Spirit can use that for our spiritual edification and growth. So after a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure you're in right relationship with the Lord, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's just such a wonderful thing to be able to spend time in your word and to learn and to grow, to always discover new things, find new things, make new correlations between different parts of Scripture, always pushing forward. Father, we just thank you for uh, the fact that it never grows stale, never grows boring. It's always exciting. And Father, we thank you for how it strengthens us and informs us and encourages us and reminds us that you are in control and that we can rely upon you and that your strength, your omnipotence, your, your love for us always sustains us. You have given us everything we need uh, for life and godliness, and that means that we have all that is necessary to handle whatever happens in life, whatever our sin nature or circumstances throws at us, uh, we can handle it by your word. And we pray that as we study tonight, that confidence in your word will just be strengthened in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're continuing a sub-series on the sufficiency of Scripture. This is one of the most challenged doctrines by evangelicals today, and it's extremely subtle because a lot of the people who challenge it are firm advocates of, of the inerrancy and the infallibility of, of the Word. And they actually think that they believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, but they are uh, they're duped. And this has been insidious over the last century. 
Do you realize that before World War II, you did not have any departments of counseling in any of the seminaries or any of the evangelical seminaries or Bible colleges? In fact, it really wasn't until you got into the late 60s and 70s that psychology and counseling began to make serious inroads into the evangelical community. It was not accepted at all prior to, prior to World War II. But the sufficiency of Scripture doesn't just address issues related to psychology and counseling. It also addresses issues related to creation. It ad- addresses issues related to uh, just the anything that, that, is, that we would, might deem controversial, uh, politics, is another area. The Word of God is sufficient. It may not be a political book, although there are some books out there today that, that say that it's got a very strong political message, and, and I would agree with that. That's not its primary purpose. It's not a history book, but it is filled with historical facts, and the historical truth in Scripture is sufficient to reconstruct time frames in the ancient world. So the sufficiency of Scripture goes in a lot of different directions, and I believe that if you uh, do not, once you turn your back on the sufficiency of Scripture, you have uh, started to slide in the wrong direction. You're going down a very slippery, slippery slope, and it's sad to see that uh, outside of a number of smaller, more recent Seminaries such as Chafer Seminary, Tyndale Seminary, probably a half a dozen others that are around, uh, that aside from those, and one of the reasons that they came along was because they saw the uh, older seminaries uh, in decline. And we get touched by this, and you may not realize it, but even in our own congregation, uh, there's a lady in the congregation who is taking courses towards a master's degree in biblical counseling at Dallas Seminary. And when she filled out her application to, uh, uh, for entrance at, at DTS and to go into the program, they rejected her application, even though she was fully qualified. And the reason they gave is because her understanding of the sufficiency of Scripture was just too rigid for their counseling program. Now, that tells you a lot. She had to go through a couple of uh, uh, extra interviews before they finally allowed her to enter and matriculate on a probationary basis. And her view of of sufficiency of Scripture is one that was taught from this pulpit. So that tells you a lot about where uh, Dallas Seminary has gone. I'm going to give you some more information on that as we go through, if we get there uh, if we get there tonight. So tonight we're going to start up, we're going to do a little review. We'll start up uh, after uh, about where we ended last time, and we need to look at man's problem. This is so important. When you look at these different areas, whatever it may be, it, let's let's take the example of the origin of man, and you're thinking about the creation-evolution debate. And you look out there and you see all of these dead things in the fossil strata, in the, in the fossil beds. Well, they interpret it one way, that this took 
millions of years to lay down all those strata and to lay down all those dead things and to fossilize them. And we, as Bible-believing Christians, look at it and say, no, that can't be because death is the consequence of Adam's sin. Death in the universe, not just human death, but death. There was no death before Adam. And so that tells you right away that those fossils could not have been laid down prior to the fall in Genesis chapter 3. So you either believe the Bible or you don't. And that is foundational. And so the issue there is sin. And if you don't believe in sin, you don't understand the fall, which is where so many people are today. One of the problems we have in politics today is that those who hold to a left position, a, the, the, the leftist position, the liberal position, don't believe in the depravity of man. They, don't, they believe man is basically good as opposed to basically evil and corrupt. That's a watershed line. Thomas Sowell, uh, who's a very well-known economist and political uh, writer in his book, Conflict of Visions, lays that out right at the beginning, that you go back 200 years, 300 years, what you see is the difference between those who would be on the, on the left versus those who would be on the right, is that you see those who line up on the right on most issues uh, they're the ones who believe it, that man is totally depraved, that man is a sinner. Those who end up on the other side uh, don't believe that. They believe man is basically good. So this whole issue of man's problem is foundational. Well, when you get into the area of psychology and counseling, it, it's, it's fundamental because psychology and counseling, how you counsel somebody, how you understand behavior is going to be determined by how you view the nature of man. And if man is spiritually dead and man is a sinner, then you've got one whole set of issues. But if man is basically good, then you're going to address what's going on in their life from a totally different perspective. And so when you look at all of the big names, the founders of different uh, psychological uh, counseling models and schools, uh, outside of the Christians, Christians will give lip service to total depravity. And some of them will give more significance to it than others. But you look at the secularists from Freud to Maslow to Jung, they don't believe that man is basically evil. They don't have a concept of the sin nature. And that is going to completely skew and distort their models of psychology. And every Every so-called Christian model of psychiatry and counseling is nothing more than a secular model that's had a bunch of Bible verses velcroed to it. And, and there's study after study after study demonstrating this. And, and uh, I pointed out last time that uh, with uh, two of the leading psychiatrists who were who taught at Dallas Seminary in the, in the 70s and into the 80s were were Minrith and Meyer, and yet they did not, uh, they, they used a lot of scripture, but it was just window dressing. They were basically just teaching a psychiatric medical model of, of behavior. So you have to be very careful, and ultimately the problem comes down to understanding the spiritual way of life, your, your view of sanctification. And even among Christians, there are different models of the spiritual life and sanctification. So all of these things 
are very important to understand. The only place where we get truth is by going to the Scripture. And one of the central passages, I would say there's about three or four central passages in the New Testament on, on sufficiency of Scripture, is the one we're in in Second Peter 1, uh, 3, and 4. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now, last time I saw that these terms, life and, life and godliness, <coughs> reflect two different Greek words. One emphasizes a way of life, so that's your, your physical life. And that we would relate that to logistical grace, that God is going to give you the food, shelter, clothing, financial resources, people, personnel, whatever it is that you need to fulfill God's mission for your life. Second is eusebeia, which is a term that often it's translated godliness or, or piety, but the idea in, uh, I take it from the English translation, when something is something with an L-Y in it, godly, uh, poorly, it's like poor or like God. And we are in the process of being made into the image of Christ. So that's what godliness is, is a character that is like Christ. So that relates to our spiritual life. So I like to translate that word as our spiritual life. God has given us everything related to our physical life and everything we need for our spiritual life. He's given the, us the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit, and he has given us a completed canon of Scripture. And that those are the fundamental blocks that we need in order to grow, uh, to grow spiritually. And then this, the verse 4 begins, by which, that is, by this glory and virtue related to the essence of God, having been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, <clears throat> that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now, I want to go through and do a little more exegesis on this passage, how it relates to what we're studying this evening. So it starts off that by which, that is by these two uh, attributes of God, words that refer to the attributes of God as glory and virtue, we have been given. And that word for being given is from the Greek verb doreomai, which means to give something. And whenever you see God giving anything, the thing that ought to just flash in your mind with neon lights is grace. Every time God gives anything, that's a manifestation of his grace. It's undeserved favor. And that's why we also talk about not only the sufficiency of the word, but the word is sufficient because it comes from the grace of God, which is also sufficient. God's grace is going to supply everything that, that we need. So he has graciously given to us these exceedingly great and precious promises. So that goes to the word. It is what is communicated in the word that is foundational here. And that it is through these, that is through these promises that you may be. And the word, the Greek word there for may be is the Greek word ginomai, 
which has the idea of becoming something, and often it means to become something that you were not before. So it's, it's bringing into focus a transformation that you may be, and it's an aorist subjunctive. So it's, it's, it's used, usually you have a subjunctive verb after a hina to express a purpose clause. So this is God's purpose, that through these promises you might be, and it expresses a potential. So it doesn't mean you're automatically going to be this or become this, but that this is what God has given us the potential for, but it depends on our volition whether we're going to actuate that potential, that you may be or become partakers, and that's the Greek word koinonia, which has the idea of a partner or sharing in something. And what we share in is the divine nature. And I'll get into the details of what that means specifically in terms of the Greek, but I think this is a comparable idea to what we have in Romans uh, 8, 28 to 30, that we are being conformed to the image of Christ. We are creating, what, what God is creating in us is the character, the image of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to partake of this. There are those who distort this passage, and they try to make this mean regeneration. And then if it means regeneration, then you're automatically going to start doing all the right things, and that's uh, that relates to lordship salvation. So it doesn't have anything to do with regeneration. It has to do with activating that potential from the subjunctive verb genomai to become partake, uh, partakers or sharers in God's nature so that his essence, his character is reflected in us. And what's interesting here, see, you have the main verb is dereomai. It's a perfect tense that he ha- it has been given to us. This is something that happened in the past. When? At our salvation. It happened in the past. It was completed in the past with, e- with uh, results that continue into the present. So that's important because, and, and then the next verb, the genomai is also an aorist tense. So these are both... Uh, perfect tense is completed action. Eris is, is in the past, simple, uh, descriptive past. And so you have these two past tense <coughs> finite verbs, and then it's followed by this participle. Now, <coughs> when you have a past tense verb, that aorist uh, tense, and it's followed by an aorist participle, sometimes the aorist participle can precede the action of an aorist tense verb uh, sometimes it happens at the same time. So the idea here is that we become sharers in God's character because our, our by, it's instrumental, by having escaped. And it happens at, this, at the same time that, the, that, that being sharing in his divine nature, it happens at, at, at the same time. It doesn't precede it. It happens as, at the same time by means of escaping the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now, that's a fascinating concept because it's talking about spiritual growth where we're not being controlled by our sin nature. When we're controlled by our sin nature, that produces the problems. When we are growing and our character is being transformed into the character of Christ, then what is happening is that we are 
not being controlled by the lust patterns of our sin nature. So that is, and, and what we see there that is important is that this is emphasizing the reality of, of our nature is a nature of corruption. And that corruption is related to the lust in our souls, the lust pattern that wars, as First Peter says, that wars against our soul. So we're in this, in this battle. Now the word there that is translated corruption is the word phthora, and it's translated mostly corruption in the New King James. You have passages like Galatians 6, 8 that says, For he who sows to his flesh, flesh is being as another term for relating to the sin nature, he who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. We are corrupt and we live on the basis of that corrupt nature, then what it produces is further corruption in our lives. And corruption just means that we are engaged in messing everything up from the moment we get born. From the moment of our birth, we begin to produce corruption from our corrupt nature. And see, that informs you right away that that the problems that we have are not problems that appeared when we were 15 years old or 25 years old or 40 years old. They're problems that have their source in the corruption of our sin nature and what that began to produce from the moment we were born. We were in corruption. Scripture teaches you only have two natures. One nature is the one you're born with, and the other nature you get when you are born again. So until you are saved, you only have one nature, that's your sin nature, and all it can do is produce that which is consistent with it. Either its area of weakness is going to produce uh, the things that we identify as sins, overt sins, sins of the tongue, and mental attitude sins, or it's going to produce a, a, a pseudo-morality, the area of strength in terms of doing uh, human good. Just think about the Pharisees. Think how corrupt the legalism of Israel had become. It is a masterpiece of morality, but it was corrupting the entire culture because it was driven by arrogance. And arrogance plus morality, morality equals what? Self-righteousness. And you say, well... What if you live in a licentious world? We came out of the 60s. We had our culture shifted to a licentious culture, but they had a morality. They still had ethical standards. They were immoral standards, but they, that's their morality. Everybody has a morality. It's either going to be a, a, a corrupt, uh, licentious morality, or it is going to be a, a rigorous, legalistic uh, morality. And if you want to quibble about that, just go back and read through Isaiah and Jeremiah and all of the things that are said about how the Israelites at that time, how they had come under the fertility religions and they are sacrificing their children uh, to, to the gods for fertility, for prosperity. They're literally burning them alive. And you think that that that's not corruption? That was just, that was horrible. It was immoral. 
And so you have an immoral corruption. Then when you get to the Pharisees, you have a moral corruption. But the sin nature always produces corruption. It can't do anything different. And depending on a lot of different factors, part of which are your decisions, your response to your own sin nature, and part of it is how others respond and attack you in one way or the other, all of those complexities uh, mixed in with your parents' sin natures and your siblings' sin natures and everything else, all of that impacts you a lot before you become volitionally conscious. You're three years old. You're not volitionally conscious. You're not aware that how I respond to these things is part of my uh, divine institution of personal responsibility. You're corrupt. You don't know any different, yet you have already for three years set mental, mental habits, mental behavior problems, uh, mental behavior uh, behaviors that sh- will shape you for the rest of your life. Aren't you glad you have forgiveness of sins and God's remaking us? I mean, we, we, by the time we're five or six years old, we have made so many corrupt, bad decisions that damage us down through the rest of our lives that you, you can't even count them up. And you think you can go sit on, on, on in some chair in some psychologist's office and he doesn't even believe in total depravity and he can give you any kind of guidance. Well, he may know some facts, but he doesn't have any wisdom. So Scripture says that this principle holds true throughout our lives. The only corrective is if we understand a few basic, even an, an unbeliever can understand some wisdom principles, and if they're drilled into us by our parents, it's going to minimize some of that damage we do to ourselves. It's just self-induced misery. So this word corruption is also a word that Peter likes a lot in Second Peter. He's used it here, and then he uses it twice in chapter 2. And in chapter 2, he uses it in relation to the false teachers that are coming. And, he, and they, they, in 2.12, he says, they will perish in their own corruption. They'll reap what they sow, Galatians 6. 2 Peter 2.19, while they promise liberty to those they're seducing and deceiving, they themselves are slaves of corruption. And I'm not sure that we can say that the false teachers are inherently believers. I mean, unbelievers. I think they're also believers. But they're operating on their sin nature, and so they have re-enslaved themselves to their own sin natures and are producing a producing corruption. And Peter goes on to say, For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. And that's a warning to these believers that he's writing that they are coming under the influence or that they may come under the influence in the future of these false teachers and that that will take them into bondage, into the bondage of either legalism or the bondage of this false teaching, whatever it is. So the solution is to understand what God has provided for us in terms of life and godliness and that we have a sufficient revelation and sufficient grace to handle whatever we face in life, whether it deals with an internal enemy such as our sin nature or an external enemy such as the world system or Satan, something overtly demonic. So let's continue with our study on what the Bible teaches about the sufficiency of Scripture. 
as we have seen just by quick review, it's grounded in the fact that the Scripture comes from God. It is revealed by God, breathed out by God, and therefore that guarantees that it is without error in the original languages and in the original autographs. So all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for instruction, for reproof, telling us you're wrong, and for correction. We live in a world today that is so hypersensitive, they don't like to be told they're wrong. I remember even as a young pastor back in the early 80s, people saying, now you need to focus on the positive things. I had one sweet little old lady tell me, say, why can't you just preach like Robert Schuller? Well, because, and my response was, you know, I never went to the Dale Carnegie School of How to Win Friends and Influence People because my response was, well, that's because he's an apostate heretic. <laughs> he doesn't believe in the sin nature. He doesn't believe that sin is a problem. How can, I, how can you ignore sin in the Bible? He, he, he wrote a book that came out in the, about 81 called Self-Esteem, the New Reformation. And the whole thesis was, well, sin was okay for those guys back in the early 1500s to talk about sin. That's what those people needed to hear. But the problem today is that everybody's got a poor self-esteem, and we just need to know that Jesus died to give us a good self-esteem. And that's what it was. And he mailed out free copies, I think, to every pastor or church on his mailing list. I got my, I got two copies. But it was good to use so that I could critique it and teach people about the errors of what was going on. So all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it will make us complete. That means fully qualified in terms of our spiritual uh, growth and, um, and thoroughly equipped so that we can face anything, any situation in life. But you have to grow up pretty fast, especially if you don't trust Christ until you're 30 years old. You've got a lot of stuff to overcome and unlearn. So we looked at the first point, which is simply that sufficiency means that it's enough. It's, it's adequate. It's going to meet the needs. Whatever comes up, you have everything you need to do it. And we looked then at Psalm 1 and Jeremiah 17:8 and following to understand that it is the Word of God that makes the difference between the tree that flourishes and the tree that withers. In other words, the life that flourishes and is blessed and happy is different from the life of the wicked who ignores the Word of God. At the end of Jeremiah, in verse 9, we have a really good statement about the sin nature. This is about where we wrapped up last time. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart there refers to the inner man. It refers to the core of our being. We talk about heart to refer literally to the organ that pumps blood, but it's in the center of our torso, so the word heart has also come to mean metaphorically that which is in the center of something. So if you're making a salad... You might put hearts of palm in your salad, and that comes from the center uh, of the palm. And so you also talk about the heart of a matter. That's the core. That's the center of it. That's the emphasis in that metaphor. And so the heart here refers to the core, the center of a man, which is his soul. And the center of the soul is his 
it, it, here I think it's referring to all the aspects of the soul, and they're all corrupted by the sin nature. Your in- intellect, your uh, self-consciousness, you look in the mirror and you see yourself in a distorted way because you have distorted values that all come from your sin nature and from, your, from the culture. Your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And that rhetorical question at the end emphasizes the fact that it's very difficult for us to do an objective analysis of our own sin nature because it is so subtle and so insidious that we don't see what it, what it does. In contrast, Jesus came to give us life and to give it abundantly. That means to handle everything in life. All through the scriptures, you have this emphasis that God has given us this wonderful gift of life, not just living eternally with him, but that we can have an abundant, rich, full life now, no matter what happens, no matter what corruption comes to our physical body in terms of health problems, no matter what corruption may affect our souls because of our own sin natures, whatever affects us because of the DNA or genetic background that, that we pick up from our birth and from our parents, uh, whatever it is and whatever circumstances happen in life, we can have rich, abundant life because it's not dependent on circumstances. As soon as your happiness, your joy, your stability is dependent on circumstances, you have made yourself a slave to whatever it is you're dependent on for some sort of stability or happiness. Second thing we looked at, or the third thing we looked at, is the personal challenge that each of us face in the problems of life. And last time I went through a whole lot lot of different uh, challenges that we face. We face challenges because things don't go the way we want them to. We don't get what we want. Life doesn't turn out the way we want it. We struggle with sadness at times. We struggle with what we might identify today as depression, but for hundreds of years, people have just gone through long periods of time with the blues. It's part of living in a corrupt world. It's a consequence of sin. We don't look the way we want. People don't respond to us the way we want. Uh, Our children don't turn out the way we want. They don't make decisions the way we want. Our friends don't make decisions the way we want. Our spouses don't make decisions the way we would like. The basic problem is nobody's doing what we want them to. It's all about me. And that's the core of the sin nature. It's just so self-absorbed. It's all about me, and everything really needs to conform to the way I want it to, and then everything will be... Uh, perfect and everything will be okay. And the question for us as believers is, do we believe the Bible is sufficient to enable us to master that sin nature, to master that self-absorption? And that means we have to understand in point number four, the problem is sin and the problem is the sin nature. Now, I'm not talking about this in a legalistic way. I'm talking about this in terms of our own experience, that we may become, may be saved, but we still have a sin nature. And until the point of our salvation, our sin nature dominated and ran everything, and we developed a tremendous number of very comfortable strategies and tactics for making life work and controlling our environment so that everything would meet our happiness demands. 
whatever it was. We started learning how to cry right away so that we could get the attention we wanted from our parents. We started learning all these kinds of things, and we all became master manipulators in one way or the other. And when we get saved, I got saved when I was six years old. I didn't start learning anything much about about the Word or using the Word probably for another eight or ten years. I was still continuing to master and to uh, perfect all of those in nature uh, tactics and strategies, and you were doing the same thing. You, maybe you didn't get saved till you were 20 or 25 or 30, but it's the same thing. We all struggle with the, those sin nature patterns, and we have to look at what's going on in terms of the control our sin nature has over us. Scripture says in Matthew 15:19, this is Jesus talking, he says, for out of the heart, saying the same thing that Jeremiah says, out of the heart, out of your soul, proceed evil thoughts, mental attitude sins, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses. Those are all, well, thefts, through thefts, that's all overt sins, false witnesses, and blasphemies are sins of the tongue. So he hits all three categories of sin there. And that comes out of the heart. It's not your parents' fault. It's not your kid's fault. It's not your dog's fault. It's not anybody else's fault. It's not the education system's fault. It's, it's not the fact that you were born and you didn't have a lot of money. It's not the fact that you were born and you had a lot of money and your parents spoiled you rotten. No overt circumstances have anything to do with it. You can't come along and say, well, I was a victim because my X, Y, or Z did this to me. You can't get away with that because my great, 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 so far back grandfather sinned and made all of us corrupt, and I'm a victim and you're a victim. So let's quit being victims. We have to forget this whole victimology thing. It's a direct attack on the, on the divine institution, number one, of individual responsibility. We are responsible for how we think and how, what we say and what we do. And that comes out of our sin nature, but we choose to do it. Galatians 5, 19 through 21 lists a number of other sins. You have adultery, fornication, which are sexual sins, and uncleanness, which in this context is probably a sexual sin, along with lewdness. Then you have idolatry. And if greed is idolatry, just about anything that we look to for meaning or purpose in life is turning it into an idol. It may be your job. It may be social status. There's just all kinds of things that you can focus on for happiness, and now you've made it an idol, and you're just as bad as all the idolaters in the Old Testament. Uh, Sorcery, which is the Greek word pharmakeia, which is the use of drugs in order to make life work. Now, I don't mean in terms of medications, but I mean I remember uh, hearing one Christian woman make a comment that once she got on Zoloft, she said, I could really see the fruit of the Spirit. No, you didn't. It was the drugs that made you, made you better. It, w- it wasn't that you were applying the Word of God or the Holy Spirit was doing anything. Uh, then you have mental attitudes and hatred, contentions, jealousies, uh, outbursts of wrath and selfish ambitions, dissensions that come out of that and heresies. 
envy, which is a, a mental attitude sin, murders, overt sin, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Now, that's all part of our sin nature, and, and no Christian gets away from it. We still have sin natures that produce all of these things. So what's the solution? Well, the solution is that we have to go back to looking at Scripture. We have to understand what is said, and so I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 6, and we're just going to do a flyby summary of Romans 6, 7, and 8, because this is the greatest section on the spiritual life and on sanctification in the New Testament. And to understand this is to understand what is necessary to really grow and mature as a believer. The basic problem is laid, or the basic solution, or excuse me, the basic problems laid out in verse 2. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? That's the question we ask. If I died to sin, how come I keep struggling with this nasty sin nature? How come I keep sinning? How come I keep having these thoughts? How come I keep reacting in anger to certain things? What? What is it? What, what's the foundation? So the answer begins in verses 3 and 4, talking about what happens at the instant of salvation, what we call the baptism by the Holy Spirit. Do you not know that as many as of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So we're identified with his death. Something, therefore, dies in us. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead into new life by the glory of of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. He's drawing a parallel there, that the resurrection is a picture of death, but new life, and as such, because we're identified with Christ in his death spiritually, we can then have newness of life. That means that we can face and handle life differently from the unbelievers around us and the believers around us who don't give a rip about God. There should be a distinctiveness there. And then this is further explained in verses 5 and 6. This explains the, how this, um, uh, our sins connect with this, this struggle with sin. There, uh, verse 5, for if we had been, have been united together with the likeness of his death, and that means yes, and we have, certainly... We also shall be in the likeness of his, of his resurrection because we know this. See, it comes back to what you know, not what you feel, not what you've experienced, but because we know certain things. You, you and I don't know anything about the baptism of the Spirit until we get into a passage like this, and it teaches us about it. But when we trusted Christ, we didn't feel the baptism by the Spirit. It was non-experiential. We can only learn about it by studying the Scripture. And we know this, that our old man, that refers to everything that we were before we were saved, it's not the talking about the old sin nature. Because when the old man is crucified, that means it died. Your sin nature didn't die. I know most of you well enough to know that your sin nature is alive and well on planet Earth, as is mine. 
So the old man, that's everything that we were before as a spiritually dead unbeliever, was crucified. That person's dead. He's gone. It's over with. We're a new creature in Christ. That person died that the body of sin, that is, it died for a purpose, that the body of sin, that's our sin nature, that the body of sin might be done away with. That emphasizes that potential again in the subjunctive mood. There's a potential. It's not going to be done away with automatically. I don't care what the Lordship Salvation crowd says. It's not going to be eradicated, which is the view of the perfectionists. It might be done away with, but certain things have to happen in order for it to be minimized. It's never going to be eradicated in this life. It might have uh, its uh, power may be reduced or its impact may be reduced. Its power is broken unless we give it power. That comes back to divine institution number one, our personal responsibility. Because we know this, that our old man was crucified with him that or for the purpose that the body of sin might be done away with. Why? Secondary purpose, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Now, you didn't know that you were a slave to sin, but you were born a slave to sin, and I was born a slave to sin, and there wasn't any way we could choose to operate on a different nature because there wasn't a different nature. All we had was our sin nature. And no matter how sweet and wonderful you were, no matter how many times you got straight A's and and how many times you were praised for good behavior, you were just a dirty, rotten, corrupt rebel against God. You were corrupt as you could be, clear to the bone, clear to the marrow. Every one of us was until we're saved. And when we're saved, we become a new creature in Christ. That person we were is crucified, but it's only a potential Before we're saved, we're a slave to sin. After we're saved, we have a choice. You can be a slave to righteousness or you can be a slave to sin. So in Romans 6.11, Paul says, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. Consider yourselves. Think about this. That's what the word means. Think of yourself as being dead to sin to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it's a mental attitude choice. It's your volition again. See, you didn't have this kind of volition before you were saved. Now you have a decision that you're going to consider yourselves dead to sin. You're going to look at that sinful behavior and you're going to say, I'm dead to that. Five minutes later, you're going to do it, but that's how we all are. We go through that process. It's a lengthy uh, growth period. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, now he's going to draw a conclusion in verse 12. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Before you were saved, sin reigned and you had no choice. Now you have a choice. The imperative here is... It recognizes the fact that you have a choice not to let sin dominate or reign. Don't let it reign that you should obey it in its lusts. See, what does lust do? Lust leads to corruption. We're to escape that corruption in uh, 2 Peter 1, 4. 
We're to escape that corruption that is in the world by lust. And and First Peter, lust wars against the soul. So what we learn here, first of all, is that the sin nature had a tyrannical power over us as unbelievers. The sin nature had a tyrannical power. It was our dictator. It made all the decisions. It was in charge of the command and control center. And every person, every one of us was born a slave to sin. And those sin natures produced relative good, and they were produced sins. They produced morality just like the, the Pharisees. We went to Sunday school maybe and did all the right things, but you were just spiritually dead. Second thing is it tells us that it's only through the act of the baptism by the Holy Spirit that we're freed from the tyranny of the sin nature. That And that never happened before. So you can go back to the Old Testament, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, all were slaves to their sin nature until the day they died. This is a great dispensational passage. There is a dispensationally distinctive view of the spiritual life, and you find it right here. And very few people have brought that out. And the third thing we see is that the solution now is going to be dependent on our volition. Now, I remember a book that came out by Meyer and Minrith when I was in seminary before I ever had them from, for, for a class. And, you know, I was in seminary in the late 70s, and there's a lot of debate going on then. What, what if any, role does psychology have in helping us figure anything out? And so everybody's question, and they had a very deceptive title to their book. The, tr- the title was absolutely correct. It was the only correct thing they had in the book. The title was Happiness is a Choice. Your happiness, my happiness, defining that not as some, some uh, you know, feel-good ephemeral emotion, but stability, contentment, tranquility. It's a choice. And that's what Paul is saying here. Your corruption, your dependence on your sin nature is up to you. And you have to make that decision. That's what Romans 6, 12 through 14 is, is emphasizing, that sin should not have dominion over us because we're not under law but under grace. And you see these commands. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness, but instead present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Why? Sin should not have dominion over you, for you're not under law but under grace. Now, this word for present is the same word we have in Romans 12.1. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. It's offering it to service. And so the idea is that when we present our bodies to the sin nature, we're we're serving our sin nature. It comes back to volition over and over and over again. And so getting into the understanding of verse 13 and the significance of our volition is is the key. But many people in the course of their growth have been in such carnal habit patterns. The trouble with a habit 
is that you lose volitional consciousness. You just do it. You develop habits. You have bad habits. Uh, you, I know when I was a little kid, my mother always kept me with a burr, and when I'd start growing it out, that I'd start twirling my hair. And so then another burr haircut. And that was just a bad habit. I wasn't even aware of it. She'd slap me, slap my hand. And uh, uh, you'd become unconscious of it. We have all kinds of habits that we don't think about as habits because we're not volitionally aware. We're not aware that we're making a decision to do that. Well, initially we made a decision to do it. Now we're just carrying it through out of, out of, uh, out of bad habit. So we have to volitionally change the habit, change the focus. Now, Paul is trying to figure out how that works, and that's what he's talking about here in verses 17 and 18. He says, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, you may still feel like you're a slave of sin, but that's only because you have re-enslaved yourself by refusing to apply Scripture and apply doctrine. And so what you have to do is start becoming volitionally conscious and say, uh, say no, claim promises, pray about it. It's not easy. Just because you, you know it and just because you pray about it doesn't make it easy. It just, that's how you learn to grow and trust the Lord. And you're fighting a, in an angry battle with your sin nature that doesn't want to give up control. It, it's sort of like, I shouldn't use that illustration, sort of like Donald Trump fighting the Democrats in Congress. You know, they've been in control and in power for so long, they just don't want to give it up, and they're just going to lie and cheat and steal and do whatever they're going to do to try to keep you from doing anything. And that's the kind of battle we have. That's not the greatest illustration. But um, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine, in other words, that teaching to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. But then he goes on to say that you have to make a decision to continue to be a slave of righteousness. So it comes down to volition. Well, in the structure of Romans 6, 7, and 8, when you get into chapter 7, Paul gets in this battle because he really hasn't understood the role of the Spirit yet. And so he's trying to uh, control the sin nature through the law, through just external morality. And finally, he gets, gets down, he gets so frustrated in Romans seven eighteen uh, down to 24. He says, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, my sin nature, nothing good dwells. For the will is present with me. I, I, I want to do the right thing. But how to perform what is good, I don't find. I can't figure out how to do the right thing. For the good that I will to do, or the good that I want to do, I don't do. But the evil that I don't want to do, that I practice. I can't break the habit. And then he, verse 23 says, But I see another law in my members, that's the sin nature, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? He's just struggling with his own sin and sin nature. And then when you get into Romans 8, 
that's when he begins to talk about the spirit, spiritual life and walking according to the Spirit. And in, we'll just look at uh, about four verses here where he says, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So it starts with what Christ did on the cross. For the purpose, in verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh. So the us is believers. So us, there's some believers who walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those are the ones who are going to learn to master the sin nature. You're walking according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Now, verse 6 goes on to say, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Now, the word phronema in the, in the Greek for minded is related to the verb phroneo, which is the word to set your mind or to think about something. So we could paraphrase it this way. For those who live according to the flesh focus their thinking on the things of the flesh. That's what they're always thinking about, is the things of the flesh. That's what they fantasize about. That's what they dream about. They, their dreams are related to revenge. Their dreams are related to success. Their dreams are related to uh, pleasure. That's their focal point. They set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds, see the word is left out there, but it's assumed, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That's what you think about. That's what you focus on. That's Philippians 4, I think it's 4, 8 or 4, 9. For to be carnally minded, that is to be, to, that, that is to be someone who thinks according to the sin nature is death. That's spiritual death. But it's a, it, it's a death-like existence for the believer. You're, you're not going to experience the life that Christ promised us. See, that's what happens when you're trying to solve your problems apart from the Word of God. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. See, Paul isn't saying that, that well, there are some special categories of emotional problems, of behavior problems, that you, you need to wait until you get a therapist. He said, no, you apply the word of God and you will have life and peace. You walk by the Spirit and you will have life and peace. And maybe if you're not, you haven't quite understood what walking by the Spirit is yet. And that's true for a lot of people. They think it's some sort of mystical thing. I'll just confess my sin and automatically I'll start walking by the Spirit. Walking is a volitional concept. It takes step by step. Now, you don't always think about that because we've developed a habit of physically walking. But when you were about, I don't know what the age is, a year, 18 months, and you start moving from crawling to walking, just watch some toddler trying to figure out how to take that next step. He's concentrating with all that he has to take that next step and not fall down. And see, that's a great analogy for the spiritual life. We live step by step, and we have to concentrate all of our thinking on doing the right thing the right way. It's not going to come automatically, and it's going to take years to develop those skills 
and those habits. But we constantly fight the sin nature. And I find that this is so helpful to understand this. First of all, up here, here's the sin nature, the black diagram. And at the center of it is is just you, me. It's all about me. Satan's five I wills culminating in the fifth one, I will be like God. Trouble after Satan didn't realize it, but when he got Adam to sin, he created an entire race of comp- competitors who all wanted to be God just as much as he did. They just didn't have all the skills that he had. It's all about each one of us, and we want to be God. We want to determine everything. So sometimes we have things that we do that look good, like the Pharisees. They produce human good. They produce a false system of morality. But where did it lead? See, human good, when human good is maximized, it leads to you have a trend towards asceticism. That means giving up things and uh, legalism. And so you have an ascetic or legalistic rigid system of morality. So you take a, but it's a pseudo-morality. So you take a pseudo-morality and you, you mix it with, with uh, self-absorption, with arrogance. And what do you get? Self-righteousness. Look at the liberal, the liberal left is the other side. See, the liberal left adopted an ethic, a morality of licentiousness and antinomianism that dominates the culture since the 60s. So you take that amoral morality, that licentious morality, and you mix it with arrogance, and what do you get? The same thing, you get self-righteousness. Have you realized how self-righteous the left is? This whole Me Too movement is nothing but arrogance and self-righteousness on the part of so many. You, you read all these hateful things that are coming out of the mouth of the... You don't read stuff like that from the right. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't conservatives that haven't said hateful things, but I'm saying you don't hear this from the leaders. You don't hear, hear it from the, uh, the, the you know, conservatives in, in Congress, conservatives in government... You don't hear it from the conservatives in Hollywood. You don't hear it from the conservatives in the media, but you hear it from the liberals in the media. It is a self-righteousness, and self-righteousness is always destructive. That's what happened with, to Israel uh, in 70 A.D. They had fragmented their culture into so many subsets that there were more Jews fighting other Jews when the Romans were storming the walls of Jerusalem then we're fighting the Romans because they had made each other the enemy. That's exactly where this country is headed. We're so mad and so divided at each other that we hate each other more than we hate our enemies. And that is going to lead to the same nasty end, which is total self-destruction. So next time we'll come back to get to the fifth point. I'm glad. I've got notes for the next three weeks uh, and slides. The confrontation is in our soul between divine viewpoint and human viewpoint, between earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. And the the word of God is what is sufficient. So we'll come back and develop this more 
uh, next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be reminded that your word is absolutely sufficient. Your power is sufficient. The Holy Spirit is sufficient. Your grace is sufficient. Everything about what you have given us is more than enough for us to learn to live, to walk, and to experience the joy, the happiness, the peace, the tranquility, the contentment that we have been given by the Lord Jesus Christ. The only issue is our volition, that we use it too often just to feed our sin nature and to glorify ourselves rather than to glorify you. We pray that we might be able to think these things through and see and have in our thinking the things exposed that need to be exposed by the light of your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.